traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... What central bankers have been talking about at Jackson Hole... The buzz of the conference was about the the challenge of protectionism, but also the challenge that the rest of the world faces because all of these American actions are having spillover effects to them. And can companies use comedy to give them an edge? One of the great things about studying comedy and improvisation is it's very status-oriented. So it makes you understand the power of lower status, power of middle status, power of high status, and how it can constantly shift. But first, the pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson has been ordered to pay $572 million for its part in the opioid crisis in the state of Oklahoma. The ruling was made in court by Thad Bulkman. My judgment includes findings of fact and conclusions of law that the state met its burden that the defendants, Janssen and Johnson & Johnson's misleading marketing and promotion of opioids created a nuisance, including a finding that those actions compromised the health and safety of thousands of Oklahomans. The case was the first to go to trial out of thousands of lawsuits filed against opioid makers and distributors around America. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, opioids had a role in almost 400,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. from 1999 to 2017. So how much of a precedent does the Johnson & Johnson ruling set? Vijay Vaitiswaran is The Economist's US business editor. Hello, Vijay. Hello, Simon. Now, these legal battles have been going back for years, haven't they, over a decade, but most have seemed to have ended in settlements. How did this one end up in court? Until now, typically pharma companies have settled out of court and often kept the details secret. I think that was part of the strategy is that they did not want the inner workings of how they sold opioids to come to the public. And so that this is a first real look under the hood of how a pharma company marketed its products and in the eyes of the state and now in the eyes of an Oklahoma judge, mismarketed and misled uh, as per the verdict that was issued against Johnson & Johnson. And what exactly were the charges? Was that it, misrepresenting, mis- mismarketing? The legal theory of the case it was actually something novel. And now in practical terms, uh, Johnson & Johnson stood accused of having caused the opioid crisis in Oklahoma. Now, there were a couple of other companies that were also charged. One of them, Purdue Pharma, is the one most closely associated with the opioid crisis in America. They settled before the trial began, as did Tiva, an Israeli generics company. However, Johnson & Johnson decided to fight. And their tagline is, when you're right, you fight. Uh, 
And so with that sense of righteousness, uh, what turned out to be perhaps bravado, they did fight. And in the end, they did lose and are asked to pay $572 million by the judge in Oklahoma. What's interesting is the theory of the case is something called public nuisance. And this is something that's typically applied to things like loud parties or uh, creating uh, disturbances at public parks. It had not been applied to a pharmaceutical company or indeed a corporate case like this. But that is the theory put forward by the attorney general. And in this case, it was successful in Oklahoma. It was successful, but the state won far less than it hoped, didn't it, from the ruling? I mean, how have Johnson & Johnson reacted? Have they taken it as a a partial victory or as a total defeat? You're absolutely right. The state had sought $17 billion dollars. So clearly getting $572 million is, is far less. Johnson & Johnson's uh, shares rose immediately in after-hours trading after the, the verdict was announced. So investors are cheered that a, a company with over $300 billion in market capitalization is being docked to what would in effect be a pittance, a sum they can make in a, in a few weeks in the marketplace in normal trading. Even so, I think it is right to say that as the first case that has come to trial and found a big pharma company guilty – Uh, the rest of the industry is put on notice in several ways. It's not that the same theory of public nuisance will likely be successful in other courts because uh, other states do not have the same broad definition of public nuisance as does Oklahoma. Most American states have a narrower definition. Uh, It's really the, the fact that this has gone to trial and the signaling effect to other companies will be, if you go to trial, you stand a real risk of losing. And in losing, it's not just the monetary award, it's the discovery process by which uh, how the sausage is made at your company becomes public. And I think that may be a bigger PR disaster for many companies, and the reaction could cost them much more in investor and consumer sentiment than the actual financial award that they might face from the judge or jury. And is that it as far as this case goes, or might Johnson & Johnson appeal against it? They are certainly appealing. They made it very clear that they will appeal to the state Supreme Court uh, and they're ready to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So by no means is it clear that this verdict will stand. Uh, Even so, uh, I think that there has already been a signaling effect. Uh, A very important case, a much bigger case, is scheduled to go to trial in October in Ohio. That's at a federal court. And it brings together nearly 2,000 complainants, ranging from cities and towns to uh, Native American tribes. Uh, And that case is quite interesting because it targets not only manufacturers, but it also looks at the supply chain, pharmaceutical companies and middlemen who played an important role in the distribution of enormous quantities of opioids. They're going to be in the dock. And so the effect of this ruling, I think, while not a legal precedent, may still send a signal to some of those companies that there are greater risks continuing to fight than you might think. On this program before, we've spoken to experts who've compared Big Pharma at the moment as being at a time in its history like Big Tobacco a few decades ago. Is that looking the way it is now, that this is just the beginning of a a wave of potential legal trouble for the industry? This is Uh, a moment that many people had hoped would come sooner, where uh, the industry that produced and promoted opioids that have become a scourge in the United States, killing so many lives, uh, are being held to account. I would caution, however, about the big tobacco analogy for two reasons. Uh, First of all, let's remember that the people who produced the drugs and marketed them, arguably mismarketed or uh, missold them, are not the only people involved. Doctors prescribe these drugs in astonishing quantities. 
Um, the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, approved these drugs. These are illegal products, not illegal. Uh, and people took these drugs. And so there's, I think, a broader question about governance and responsibility that has to be looked at more closely. Particularly, again, the role of the doctor has not been scrutinized in a court case very carefully. When you look at Europe, for example, where these same drugs were available, you don't see the same kind of crisis with the same kinds of debts in Europe, which has a different system of governance and different cultural norms. So I think uh, it's too facile to point the finger at one culprit, though certainly Big Pharma has a lot to answer for in this crisis. The second point is that the big tobacco analogy may not mean what people think. Uh, let's remember that big tobacco lives on today, despite having had to pay a very large fine and uh, to end some of its practices. Indeed, the big news at the moment is that Philip Morris is in talks to merge with Altria to create a, a tobacco Uber giant uh, with uh, perhaps $200 billion plus in size. So in a sense, be careful what you ask for. Vijay Vatiswaran, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And you can read more on this story in this week's Economist. Why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, over the weekend, central bankers from around the world donned their hiking boots to get together amid bears and buffaloes and against the backdrop of the mountains at Jackson Hole in Wyoming. Central bankers find themselves the targets of a lot of criticism at the moment, and not least in America itself. Donald Trump last week called Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, an enemy. Samir Keynes, our US economics editor, has just returned to Washington from Jackson Hole. Hello, Samir. Hello. So what were people talking about this year? What was top of the agenda? Well, the conference opened in fairly dramatic style. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, gave some opening comments in which he talked about monetary policy and and the challenges to that. And an hour after the release of his speech, the president started tweeting at him, uh, accusing the Fed of having done nothing, uh, saying he was an enemy. And so that was the kind of backdrop to the conference in that we have essentially the, the president trying to blame the Fed for the wobbles that we see in the American economy and and the global economy, when really actually that's probably got more to do with the trade war, at least that's what people were saying. And so the the buzz of the conference was about the the challenge of protectionism, but also, you know, bigger picture, the challenge that, that the rest of the world faces because all of these American actions are having spillover effects to them. Samir, I I know you managed to secure an interview with Jim Bullard, the chief executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Can you tell us about that? I think Jim was concerned about the impact of of all these trade tensions uh, on the global trading system, worried about what that was doing to investment, to confidence and really talking about a kind of shift that we've seen over the past few months when actually businesses have come to realise that this is going to be a bit like the new normal and that is going to be difficult for policymakers to adjust to. We're in the middle of a global trade war, which I do not think is going to abate anytime soon. I interpret current events as a global questioning of the post-war consensus on trade liberalization, and you have populist movements in a lot of different countries, and those populist movements tend to question the validity or the efficacy of free trade. 
I guess the most surprising part of that story is that it was the U.S. that was the leader on trade liberalization. And I always interpreted that as major U.S. corporations felt like they had good business models. They wanted to establish global brands. And the U.S. and its allies tried to get trade barriers down all around the world. But now you have the U.S. questioning that and other countries as well, then taking a cue from process in the U.S., uh, starting to back off their free trade ideals. What's the mechanism for all of this trade uncertainty to monetary policy? Well, I think the simplest mechanism is just that you used to have trade policy on the back burner. There were things that happened, but it was low-key, and most politicians didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to deal with it. And because of that, you could make investments around the world with relative certainty that the whatever regime that you invested in would be the same regime that was in existence uh, years down the road as you're trying to reap the returns from your investment. That has been thrown into doubt now with the trade war in full force. Now it's not at all clear that if you build a plant in a country and plant a export or get supplies from that country, that that will be a fully free channel going forward. At any moment, it could change. And so because of that uncertainty, there's going to be less investment than there would otherwise be and less global growth than there would otherwise be. So I think that's the simplest mechanism. Since the last meeting of the Fed that you decided to cut rates by 25 basis Mm -hmm. points, and then the following day, President Donald Trump tweeted, and then we got some more tariffs. And then this morning, Jay Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, gave his speech. And several hours later, we got another round of tariffs. How important do you think that escalation of trade tensions is for monetary policy going forward? It's a growing realization in financial markets that they are going to have to deal with persistent trade uncertainty over a long horizon Whereas previously, the narrative in financial markets was that, don't worry, a trade deal is going to be agreed over the weekend or a week away or 10 days away or something like that. And I think there's been a gradual realization that that isn't going to happen. And the realization that this is going to go on for a long time is really what markets are pricing in or struggling with. And then they're also struggling to figure out, well, how much does that uncertainty really cost us in terms of global investment? Do you think the president of the United States' more adversarial relationship with the Fed is a challenge for monetary policymaking? Well, I think his style is to be confrontational really with everyone that he interacts with. And so that it is a matter of style. I think as a matter of actual influence on policy, I mean, I don't think it's that great because we have our congressionally given mandate. We're trying to keep inflation low and stable, and we're trying to keep, you know, as close to full employment as we can. And we're actually achieving that. So this is kind of an odd time to be uh, criticizing the Fed. But um, we get a lot of kibitzing about our policy from all kinds of different angles. Uh, In my mind, I think uh, this is just one more voice in that big, uh, big room full of commentators on monetary policy. Can we talk now about one of the challenges facing the U.S. economy over the past 
few years, which is this problem of inflation that has persistently undershot the target. It just seems to be struggling to get above the target. This has raised concerns that the way that monetary policymakers are thinking about monetary policy is flawed. Perhaps there's something systematic that means we're too scared of heating up the economy as much as it needs. Well, I think in retrospect, uh, inflation has been below target by our preferred measure since 2012. So that's seven years. That's a long time. It does make sense that you would like to be, you know, somewhat more dovish uh, during good times. And then when a recession or a slowdown comes along, inflation will naturally fall below your target. But then on average, you would still hit the 2% inflation target. So I think that it's been a struggle for the committee to come around to that point of view because for decades the story has been, you know, don't let the inflation genie get out of the bottle. And we were always geared toward trying to keep inflation especially low and that the only problem that could ever arise would be that inflation would be too high. But in this new regime, inflation can be too low and you can't get into trouble because of it. The minutes of the most recent Federal Reserve meeting were released recently, and one thing that seemed clear was that the committee was not unanimous about the decision to cut by 25 basis points. Which arguments for cutting do you think had the most merit? When you're on the downside of a growth spurt, uh, you do worry that it's going to be overdone, and the trade war seems to be a risk to the U.S. economy. So that's one thing. Also, our inflation's below target anyway. And so the market doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence that we're going to hit our inflation target. So in some sense, we have a lot of room to maneuver here. We can be more dovish than we would be otherwise. And we have a clear risk on the table for the U.S. economy. So that's the the gist of the argument in my mind. We've spoken a lot about trade and not necessarily about the other things going on in the global economy. The global economy was taking a bit of a turn for the worse even before these trade tensions ramped up. So how important do you think that kind of general slowing of global growth is in isolation of the the trade tensions? I guess in my mind, it really is a trade shock because what you're seeing is the global manufacturing is actually in contraction today. And when we talk to manufacturers here in the U.S., they're certainly feeling the pain of this. And exporters like agriculture, they're certainly being very much affected by the trade war. So it seems like that's what's causing the slowdown. I wasn't really expecting that big of a slowdown. I think the IMF fall 2018 would have still been pretty positive of about 2019 growth globally. It's only later that they started to mark down based on the trade war. Jim, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. Our thanks to Jim Bullard there and to Samir Keynes. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And finally, Adam Roberts, our Midwest correspondent, has been looking into some funny business. This scribbler, writer of jokes. In a few moments, he will have written the funniest joke in the world. And, as a consequence, he will die laughing. 
Was Monty Python's flying circus knew 50 years ago, humour is a powerful thing. I went to Second City, a vast and venerable comedy club on the north side of Chicago, to find out just how well it pays to be funny. By night, the club has hosted great names of comedy, like Bill Murray, Joan Rivers, Steve Carroll, Tina Fey. By day, it offers wannabe funny folk workshops on how to hone their comedic skills. So many people use comedy without a license. They don't understand that this is a very um, sophisticated way to communicate. Kelly Leonard has worked at Second City since 1988. Directing the likes of Amy Poehler and Stephen Colbert, he is an expert in the power of the joke. And so context is huge. I think the reason you most leaders don't use humor uh, or are wary of it is quite right is because they don't have an expertise and if they get it wrong they can really screw up Um, but the ability to sort of have a light touch about yourself Obama had really good timing so it worked for him Trump like a like a great insult comic can use comedy to further uh, separate his in group from everyone else you know if you've got the ability to sort of wield it um, you know Yeah, by all means, and if you don't, no. Leonard is an evangelist for what he calls applied improvisation. It has attracted the attention of the University of Chicago to study how humour can provide an edge in business. I am continually delighted by the social media feeds of certain companies. Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, hilarious. Uh, and, will, and willing to kind of engage on that. And there's a few other companies where they're like, I mean, the, there's all this stuff around when to use comedy or not to use comedy. Yeah. And, and I think comedy is very good at relatability to sort of human foibles. Uh, but people don't want to joke about a plane right. that Boeing, could go down. Boeing at this moment should yeah. be using comedy. So Southwest is, uses comedy uh, to welcome you into their experience and to humanize the experience of their service to you. They're not joking around about their playing safety. As you know, it's a no smoking, no whining, no complaining flight. It's a please and thank you, and you are such a good looking flight attendant flight. Smoking is never allowed aboard Southwest. If you're not smoking, the lavatory to find for that is $2,000, and if you want to pay that for your airfare, you should have loved somebody else. Beyond encouraging individual employees to joke around, some companies have built their entire public image around having a sense of humour, especially when the products they sell are, well, a little dry. As someone said to me recently, or I read in the book, no one wakes up in the morning saying, I want to buy some insurance. So what Geico is doing is creating a, a friendly, uh, connected comic space for you to relate to their business. Why does that bother you? Why does it bother me? So easy a caveman can do it? Well, it's just a commercial. Okay. Well, what if it said um, Geico.com, so easy a therapist can do it? Well, that commercial wouldn't make sense to me. Why not? Well, therapists are... Are what? Smart? Because, again, no one one wants it. So you you have to create relatability. You have to break through the noise. 
And that's what they do. And they're relentless about it. And, and they're constantly shifting their comic POV, whether it's the Gecko or it's the Caveman. Like, all the insurance companies do it. And we've done a ton of work with State Farm. Yeah, I'm married. Doesn't matter. You do that for me? Really? Yeah, I'd like that. Who are you talking to? Uh, it's Jake from State Farm. Sounds like a really good deal. Jake from State Farm at 3 in the morning? Who is this? It's, it's Jake from State Farm. I think what insurance is recognized is like, uh, we're, we're, we're boring, uh, no one wants us, uh, so if we're going to use a mass market media, just talking soberly about this will do nothing. Those companies that know they're funny now collate their best performing videos in galleries on their own websites and get their most loved characters to urge viewers to share their favorite ads. The idea is to multiply their pulling power. So successful are these tactics that comedy clubs have begun cashing in on their comedic capital. Second City and others such as I.O. in Chicago and the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre in New York have expanded their corporate arms, offering consultations to marketeers and advertisers. But it's not just about entertaining potential customers. It's also about what comedy can do for their staff. Companies from Motorola and McDonald's to Nike and Nissan believe that sending executives to improv classes can help them to get better at their day jobs. Being immersed in these skills uh, gives you a leg up in the classroom, and it gives you a, a leg up in an entry-level position, and it gives you a leg up in a mid-level. In part, again, like one of the great things about studying comedy and improvisation is it's very status-oriented. Mm -hmm. So it makes you understand the power of lower status, the power of middle status, the power of high status, and how it can constantly shift. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every classic comedy duo is a high-status, low-status. Yeah. And the fact that that stuff's endured means there's a lot of truth inside of it. So I, I think, you know, those skills are absolutely applicable to parenting, to job success, to being a good doctor or nurse, um, and military. It's really about sort of personal narrative um, as a lens to find truth. And I don't know how you think that couldn't be valuable in any aspect of what you're working on. Twitter, Google, and Facebook have all sent tongue-tied software engineers to learn how to communicate more easily with their colleagues in sales or strategy. One high-flying management consultancy hired comedians to teach its employees to be less obnoxious or at least to seem so. As a privately owned club, the Second City declines to say exactly how big its corporate business has become. Last year, it said, the professional staff amounted to a significant, maybe 30%, part of the total revenues of over $50 million. Some managers think clowning around is a waste of time, but these clubs are on a mission to prove the Killjoys wrong. Adam Roberts our funny business correspondent. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.